Our second panel is going to focus on foreign policy. And uh, we have a very good panel here. Eric, again, a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute, one of my esteemed colleagues. We both get to work on this uh, very strange issue of North Korea, <laughs> as well as China and uh, other related issues. We have uh, Frank Ohm, uh, senior expert on Northeast Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace, and uh, Suzanne DiMaggio at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And then Jenny you know, Town, who's a senior fellow and director of the 38 North Project, puts out a lot of very good work located at the Stimson Center. So very pleased to have uh, this panel. North Korea certainly offers us a lot to discuss. And uh, Eric, do you want to take it away? Sure. Yeah, and I'm going to begin very gloomy, uh, which is odd because I'm a very, I feel like I'm a very bubbly and friendly person, um, but I'm going <laughs> to hit you with some of the Oppenheimer. Uh, <laughs> Um, <laughs> I got to make, you know, topical references, right? So we're in a very bad dynamic with North Korea right now. It's not as bad as it used to be. It's not as bad as it was in 2017, but we're in this sort of slow motion, spiral, steady little upticking intention um, that I think is, you know, it's, it's not good that we're in it. It's going to be difficult to break out of it. And I think the consequences of failure in the long term could be incredibly dire, um, and I'll, I'll go through sort of all of those points. So how the heck did we wind up here? Well, it started at Hanoi. Uh, the U.S. and North Korea did a summit in Hanoi in February 2019, coming on the heels of a rather successful year in 2018 of both inter-Korean and U.S.-North Korean uh, diplomacy at the high, very high level, president to, pre you know, president to supreme leader in South Korea, like president uh, to North Korea's supreme leader, and those produced some actual substantive gains. Uh, so I mentioned at the start of this event that uh, when the, when the uh, young man who defected to North Korea uh, yesterday, um, he wasn't shot at at the border in part because of a 2018 agreement that unarmed all of those guards at that place. So that was a, a good thing that no one was you know, killed um, and, and that there wasn't any risk of bullets crossing the DMZ. Um, but when Kim goes to North or when Kim goes to Hanoi, he puts on this table a sort of partial for partial, um, and he appeared willing to restrain North Korea's nuclear program somewhat in exchange for some sanctions relief from the United States, um, which again isn't all the way right. It's not full denuclearization. It doesn't accomplish the U.S. objective of getting nukes out of North Korea, but it was something that I think you know you'd rather North Korea have less fissile material than more, and it would have done that. Importantly, though, the U.S. and ROK, if Hanoi had been successful, would have united their approaches to dealing with North Korea at the time. Um, there was this sort of growing daylight between the Trump administration and the Moon administration, where the Moon administration was really hitting hard on this idea of a peace regime. And those are words that are going to come up a lot, I think, during this discussion with all, with all four of us. And the peace regime idea is this idea of talking with the North Koreans about other things than just the nuclear aspect. The nukes were a part of it, but the peace regime was about expanding the issue areas that you talk about with the North Koreans and trying to find slow progress on things like economic integration, on things like ending the Korean War, and on things like military and political confidence building. Again, nuclear weapons are a component of a peace regime, but they're not the only thing. And I think this was a really smart approach from the South Koreans because it 
addresses the, the sort of structural conditions under which the North Koreans got nukes in the first place, right? The North Koreans don't just wake up one day and decide, I want nuclear weapons. Instead, it's sort of this product of a security environment around them that looks kind of dangerous to them and having this as sort of the ultimate guarantor of their regime's survival. Also, a peace regime, I think, is easier for North Korea to implement over the long term because it creates somewhat of a buffer, right? If you are only talking with the United States about denuclearization and you give up the nukes, well, the U.S. is still incredibly stronger than you. We're in a much better position than the North Koreans are. And if we had a change of administration in the White House that suddenly doesn't like the North Koreans or really wants to turn the screws to them, we could reverse that position at relatively low cost. In a peace regime environment, if you have progress on these other lines of effort toward improving both inter-Korean and U.S.-North Korean relations, there are bigger boundaries built into that. So the idea of a sort of quick switch in American policy that puts the North Koreans on the back foot and leaves them incredibly vulnerable is less of a concern because you have to spend more effort dismantling the peace regime you have built in the process. So that's, that's kind of like the if it had happened, right? If Hanoi had gone off without a hitch, I think things would be much different now um, because it would have united uh, U.S. and South Korean approaches towards North Korea during the Moon administration, which I think would have opened the door for more progress before changes in administration in both the United States and South Korea. Hanoi kills the momentum for this, though. And, and since 2019, what we've seen instead is North Korea digging in its heels. Even though it's the weaker party, I think North Korea can afford to just not negotiate, right? They can afford to sit back and wait because maximum pressure didn't really work all the way. Um, and it's also not coming back. Uh, the U.S.-China relationship is not in a great place. China, at least not being our enemy, was very helpful to getting them to let us do things at the U.N. that they previously blocked. Um, so that's not coming back anytime soon. The North Koreans also intentionally, this idea of you know, economic pressure that uh, sort of forces them to the table of you, need, you can either keep the nukes or you can have an economy, you can't do both. Um, North Korea isolated itself almost completely during the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020 and 2021 to try and prevent uh, COVID from coming into the country. They, they sort of ran the case study in economic isolation very well and they didn't come crawling back, right? None of the sanctions were still on and it didn't really change any of their calculus on that. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, the North Korean progress on the nuclear, on the nuclear front allows them to drive a harder bargain with us now. Um, the U.S. and ROK, if we're growing more concerned about China, there's also a cost because any, now, any concession that we make towards North Korea to try and, uh, you know, say, reduce troop numbers on the Korean peninsula in exchange for some North Korean measure to reduce their nuclear arsenal. Now, from the U.S. perspective, that has costs because, well, it has costs always, but it has additional costs because if the focus is on China in the long term, then those forces may not be available to help with that. And I, I mean, I don't know if I would view the problem that way myself, but I think this is part of the challenge of breaking out of the current impasse we find ourselves in. And like we talked about earlier, there's, there's really no interest from the Biden administration on trying anything uh, beyond just sort of coasting uh, on the North Korea problem. Um, but I, I think it's kind of the only way out, right? We, in, in large part because we've exhausted everything else. 
I think we need to figure out how the heck to get back to a peace regime, how to make that the overarching goal of our negotiation strategy towards North Korea, um, to move away solely from denuclearization and cons instead consider nuclear deterrence and nuclear arms control as a subcomponent of a broader goal. Um, but this is going to require the United States to sort of play a lead in articulating trade-offs and articulating uh, certain trades with the North Koreans to try and get them there, saying no preconditions to talks while adhering to the goal of full denuclearization is a non-starter for Kim Jong-un, and the longer we sort of wait to think of something more creative than that, the worse the situation gets because the more nukes the North Koreans build and the more missiles they build. Um, and I think, you know, that's, that's a hard sell in this town. Um, I know uh, uh, Frank and I uh, participated in an event um, together um, about a month ago where, where I think he has some better, I'm putting you on the spot a bit, uh, but I think he has some better ideas for the sort of fine-grained ways for actually moving towards this. Um, I'm sure uh, uh, Jenny and Suzanne also have some, some better ideas than the sort of broad strokes I have described here. Um, but I'm really worried about the consequences of failure. Um, and this is going to be sort of, you know, speculative fiction time. Um, but I, I think if these current trends hold, uh, uh, stuff's going to get real bad. Um, and so what, I, you know, what trends am I talking about? Well, in a world where North Korea, China, and now Russia are sort of interested in building up their nuclear arsenals, if that continues unabated, if the United States and Russia can't get back to arms control, right, because both us and them have done things to effectively eviscerate that, the arms control regime that existed between us. Um, the, the MPT regime also isn't looking, it's not on death's door, but it's not looking super healthy either. Um, and I think you have a situation where arms control is going away, nuclear dangers are increasing. If U.S.-China relations continue to go down and continue to get worse, we're probably going to see increased pressure from South Korea, from Japan, from other U.S. allies and partners in East Asia to do more to uh, deter adversaries and reassure them. This will likely look like nuclear forces, nuclear force buildup that we would struggle to actually meet, even if we spent the money. Right? It's not just a money issue, it's a, it's a capacity issue and a capacity issue that doesn't get quickly fixed by more money. Um, and I, I, I've kind of wondered, like, if these continue, does, do you get into a situation where, you know, uh, you know if, if you're a sort of alliance skeptic like Doug and I, or an alliance fan um, like, like most of the other folks uh, here, I, 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 what I worry about is a situation where we get, isn't it a good idea for South Korea or Japan or other like-minded democracies to have nuclear weapons and we also retain commitments to them, right? Something akin to sort of early Cold War France and the United Kingdom under the Eisenhower, uh, uh, under the Eisenhower administration. And, you know, oh, we don't like nuclear proliferation, but in this world of increasing nuclear danger where, uh, you know, things are bad with the Chinese and the Russians at the same time and we don't have arms control, does this look like a more attractive option? even if it comes with risk. And I think that would be the worst of both worlds. Like for restrainers like Doug and I, right, you know, the nukes, like it, part of the alliance system is, right, you have this alliance so you don't get the bomb. 
having a country with nukes that also is still a U.S. ally, well, we're still on the hook. Things have just gotten more dangerous all around. Um, and then if you're a fan of, you know, the alliance and its deterring effect on getting nuclear weapons, then, well, that objective has also failed. Uh, so it's a world that I don't, again, this is very speculative. I don't think it necessarily will for sure happen, but I feel like you can see the conditions being in place and the trend lines as they are currently being in place, where, say, in a decade or so, if nothing changes off of these things that I've described, eh, yeah, maybe a South Korean with a nuke isn't such a bad idea, but also we'll keep the alliance, uh, which I think would be, maybe it solves some of your sort of uh, deterrence problems in the short term, but it creates a whole bunch of new things, uh, new problems. So with that very rosy picture of our uh, maybe future, but I hope not, um, I'm going to turn it over uh, to Frank uh, to hopefully provide some ideas for how to not get to that world. <laughs> how, to, how to get out of the bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, how to get out of the bad stuff. Uh, well, great. First, uh, Eric, Doug, uh, thank you so much for inviting me to join this panel. Um, so let me start off by saying that um, I think a durable peace regime uh, with North Korea may very well be impossible. Uh, but I'm talking specifically about a conventional, ideal notion that we have, uh, that many people have, where North Korea gives up its nuclear weapons and we sign a peace treaty with, uh, uh, with North Korea. I think this type of scenario is very implausible, and, and for a few reasons. One is it's extremely likely that North Korea will uh, decide to disarm. This isn't just my opinion. This is the assessment of the U.S. intelligence community and what most North Korea analysts believe. Uh, second, I also think it's unlikely that the United States would seriously pursue a peace treaty with North Korea. In fact, for 50 years, uh, 1953 to 2006, when North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons, we didn't seriously pursue a peace treaty with North Korea. Um, there was that half-baked offer in 1996 from President Clinton and Kim Jong-sam, um, but that uh, proposal for peace talks fell apart really quickly when North Korea wanted to have um, U.S. troops be on the agenda for talks, and, and the U.S. rejected that. Uh, and then third, even if the two sides could reach some sort of peace mechanism, whether it's a formal treaty that requires two-thirds approval from the Senate or an executive agreement like the agreed framework that doesn't require Senate approval, uh, we've seen that these types of uh, agreements are not necessarily permanent. Uh, the U.S. has withdrawn from uh, many past agreements, like the Mutual Defense Treaty with Taiwan, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the INF Treaty. So there's no reason why North Korea should give credence to any sort of negotiated deal with the United States, given how fleeting uh, these types of deals can be. So uh, instead of seeking an improbable, idealized, uh, a formal peace mechanism, I think it'd be better to pursue a more realistic, tangible peace. And this type of peace wouldn't prioritize maximalist goals like uh, a formal peace treaty or denuclearization, uh, but I think it, it would focus more on things like uh, things that immediately would reduce risks and provide security benefits. So um, regular diplomatic engagement, concrete arms reduction steps, uh, more people-to-people -people interaction, 
In other words, what we would be seeking is peaceful coexistence with North Korea. Some people might say that's a ridiculous idea. The U.S. has never peacefully coexisted with North Korea. But the fact is that we already did. If you look at the period between 1994 and 2002, the eight-year period, we essentially peacefully coexisted with North Korea because during this period, both sides were complying with the agreed framework. Uh, They were constantly engaging engaging to implement the agreed framework uh, through the Korea Peninsula Energy Development Corporation uh, organization, engaging in talks to end North Korea's missile program, engaging uh, to potentially work towards a peace treaty, like I I mentioned, engaging through the Perry process, uh, and engaging uh, in the meetings between Madeleine Albright and Kim Jong-il, and then when Vice Marshal uh, Jong Myung-nook came to the Oval Office to meet with President Clinton. There was also regular congressional engagement. It's not that far along, uh, far back where there were U.S. congressional members and staffer delegations going to North Korea practically every other year. You can talk to people like uh, Keith Luce, uh, who's at the National Committee on North Korea, but was formerly a staffer for Senator Luger, uh, Frank Januzzi at the Mansfield Foundation, who was a staffer for Senator Biden. Uh, They made multiple trips to Pyongyang, and they have a lot of stories about that. From 1996 until 2005, you had U.S. military officers working side-by-side with the Korean People's Army officers in North Korea to help recover the remains of U.S. service members from the Korean War. They conducted 37 joint operations during this period that recovered 417 sets of U.S. service member remains and brought them home. Also starting in 1995, Uh, There were U.S. humanitarian and faith-based NGOs uh, that began establishing a strong presence in North Korea, uh, developing strong ties on the ground with the North Korean people. And then similarly, there were North Korean delegations that were coming to the U.S. Uh, For example, there were North Korean taekwondo teams uh, that did tours across the U.S. and North Korean scientists that did academic exchanges uh, at places like Stanford University, Syracuse University, among others. And then on the the security side, North Korea shut down its graphite-moderated nuclear reactors at Yongbyon, so they weren't reprocessing any plutonium. They didn't conduct any nuclear tests, and they conducted one ballistic missile test uh, during that eight-year period. So this was uh, the United States and North Korea peacefully coexisting without a formal peace agreement, but with many of the characteristics of a peaceful relationship. So I think this is the type of situation that we should be striving for. Of course, today's environment is very different because North Korea has nuclear weapons and the U.S. and the international community is imposing a very stringent sanctions regime against North Korea, which complicates things significantly. But I think we need to find an arrangement that gets us to a peaceful coexistence with a nuclear North Korea because that situation will always be better than a hostile existence with a nuclear North Korea. Uh, The second point I'll make is um, how we might get to this peaceful coexistence. I think uh, empirical evidence is pretty clear. When we engage with North Korea, they tend to behave better. Not perfectly, but better. Um, Lisa Collins, uh, who was formerly at CSIS, but she's at OSD, uh, Office of the Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon right now, she did a study in 2017 that looked at data between uh, 1990 uh, and 2017, and it demonstrated a very strong correlation between periods of U.S. DPRK engagement uh, 
and lower levels of North Korean provocations. Uh, I think a more concrete example is um, I had a chart that I provided. I don't know if you can put it up. Um, but this is a chart that's provided by the, and it's, you might not be able to see, it's too small, but it's a chart provided by the CSIS Missile Defense Project. It shows North Korean ballistic missile tests from 1984 to 2022. And if you look at the period between 1994 and 2002, the eight years in which the U.S. and North Korea were complying uh, with, the agreed, uh, with the agreed framework, uh, you'll notice one missile test. Similarly, in 2011, when we were in negotiations with North Korea for the Leap Day deal, zero ballistic missile tests. When we were in negotiations with North Korea leading up to Singapore and Hanoi in 2018, no weapons testing. Conversely, when we stop engaging with North Korea and we try to isolate and pressure them, they tend to behave a lot worse. So again, looking back at the chart, look at the period between 2012 and 2018, when we implemented a global pressure campaign against North Korea after the collapse of the Leap Day deal, North Korea responded, you won't see it up there, but they conducted three nuclear tests and then over 90 ballistic missile tests. Uh, likewise, if you look at the period between 2019 and 2022 after the failure of the Hanoi summit, and then we returned to basically an isolation and pressure approach, uh, we had similar results. In fact, in 2022 alone, last year, North Korea conducted more missile te ballistic missile tests in that one year alone than in any previous year, not to mention its testing of hypersonic glide vehicles, solid fuel uh, missiles, and underwater drones. Um, all of this shouldn't be surprising because Kim Jong-un laid out his approach to the U.S. in January 2021. He said the way that North Korea would approach the, uh, the principle that they would go by in dealing with the U.S. is power for power, goodwill for goodwill. So we know what works. Engaging with North Korea is the way to go. But the problem right now is that neither side seems particularly interested in talking. Of course, if you talk to the Biden administration, they understandably would claim that uh, it has repeatedly sought uh, working level talks with North Korea, but to no avail. But I think for North Korea, these US overtures seem insincere uh, or half-hearted uh, when uh, they're accompanied by aggressive military muscle flexing uh, from the alliance and terse messages from President Biden to Kim Jong-un. Recall when Biden was in Seoul last year meeting with President Yoon, uh, a South Korean journalist asked Biden whether he had a message for Kim Jong-un. And this is how Biden responded. <laughs> Hello, period. Right? <laughs> That seems like a funny way of trying to express a sincere willingness to engage in dialogue. So it doesn't matter how many times the State Department reaches out uh, for working level talks of President Biden's direct message, his outreaches basically standoffish. So I think uh, instead of these perfunctory attempts at talks, it would be better if the United States uh, considered uh, a more uh, well, I'd say a different approach, and I've written about this approach uh, many times, uh, which would be to offer unilateral conciliatory uh, gestures to North Korea to demonstrate greater sincerity, uh, sincerity for negotiations. There's academic literature, including from people, uh, scholars like Charles Osgood and Charles Kupchan at Georgetown University, that suggests that conciliatory gestures, typically made by the stronger country, can help induce reciprocal 
uh, positive behavior from the other side. I know this seems risky, uh, certainly in DC, but it's not just academic theorizing. There's precedent to suggest that this type of process works on the Korean Peninsula. So in the early 1990s, uh, Washington unilaterally withdrew the tactical nuclear weapons from the Korean Peninsula. It canceled the Team Spirit major military exercises in 1992 and 94 and 95. And it agreed to high-level talks for the first time in 38 years in New York. Uh, Under Secretary Arnold Cantor and, and Kim Young-sun met in New York for the first time since the 1954 Geneva Conference, right? So these were major unilateral concessions. And in response, North Korea signed the denuclearization and reconciliation agreements with South Korea and a nuclear safeguards agreement with the IAEA. 2018 is another example where uh, you had unilateral conciliatory gestures leading to reciprocation from the other side. This time it was North Korea uh, that provided the gestures and the U.S. that reciprocated with uh, Trump's agreement to meet for the first ever, first time ever presidential uh, talks, uh, as well as Trump canceling the Ultra Freedom Guardian exercise in August 2018. Unfortunately, this conciliatory cycle ended pretty quickly after Singapore when the U.S., didn't offer the additional types of measures that North Korea was looking for. Uh, and I think that seemed to make Kim Jong-un fairly inflexible in negotiations at Hanoi. Uh, let me end with one final thought. Uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, it's so hard to break free from this conventional pressure-based approach against North Korea is that there is this fear-based, deterrence-heavy uh, way of thinking in D.C. And one of the most representative manifestations of this way of thinking is the heavy use of wargaming uh, at DOD, which I was at for seven years, and, and many D.C. think tanks uh, use wargames as well. And I think these wargames uh, oftentimes will look at negative scenarios like China invading Taiwan or North Korea attacking South Korea, which then elicits predominantly uh, def uh, defense and deterrence-based responses. And then the policy recommendations are focused primarily on building up military capabilities and strengthening deterrence rather than strengthening peace building. So one of the things that we have tried to do at the U.S. Institute of Peace is to flip the script uh, and conduct peace game simulations. So in other words, instead of negative scenarios, we look at positive scenarios like North Korea agreeing to an interim deal, and then we simulate what we can do to enhance diplomatic risk-taking so that dialogue is sustained and progress is made. Uh, I won't get into the details of the exercise, but I will note a few takeaways. Uh, one, in the simulation, the U.S. and North Korea teams emerged as the principal actors in the exercise, no surprise there, and they were the ones that determine whether negotiations remain static or move forward, and not China or South Korea. Two, both the US and North Korean teams perceived potential losses in negotiations more acutely than potential gains. This is basically this, the idea of loss aversion uh, that resulted in diplomatic inertia. Three, both the US and North Korean teams seemed open to negotiations as long as the other side took the first conciliatory step. But it was presidential leadership and political will that was the most impactful in overcoming uh, inaction. And then lastly, uh, the U.S.-China rivalry 
fueled a zero-sum mentality in the simulations that hindered opportunities for progress and heightened misunderstanding between the U.S. and South Korean teams. So uh, all this is to say that you know, I think we can make progress on the Korean Peninsula, but we have to move away from uh, the stale, hardened position uh, that uh, many people in D.C. have, and we have to be willing to take diplomatic risks to improve relations with North Korea and not just focus narrowly on deterrence to try to uh, keep North Korea in a box and contain it. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Zen. I've been sitting in a cella all morning, so it feels good to stand up. <laughs> uh, thank you for, to the Cato Institute for hosting us today. It's a pleasure to see everyone, and thanks to everyone joining us online, too. Um, so I'm going to begin with an understatement, and that is uh, we're caught up in an escalatory cycle of provocations, measures, and countermeasures with North Korea. The steady stream of tit-for-tat show of force moves we're experiencing is compounded on an almost weekly basis now uh, by a geographical uh, environment, I'm sorry, geopolitical environment that is increasingly volatile and unsettling. Emboldened by his relationships with both Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, Kim Jong-un is making significant advancements in his nuclear and missile programs with little fear of facing any major repercussions. This is happening as U.S. communication channels related to North Korea remain woefully inadequate, diminishing the prospects for diplomacy and heightening the risk of miscalculation. North Korea's military capabilities are growing. They're diversifying. They're becoming more sophisticated. Last year, the number of missile tests by Pyongyang reached an all-time high, including the resumption of intercontinental ballistic missile tests for the first time since 2017. Just last week, in a test overseen by Kim himself, the North Koreans fired a new solid fuel ICBM. And there have been indications for a while now that the North Koreans are preparing to resume nuclear testing. This would be another first since 2017. There also has been an uptick in rhetoric um, by Pyongyang conveying an explicit intention to develop and a readiness to deploy tactical weapons. At the same time, the North Koreans have ramped up cyber activities. Critical U.S. defense-related infrastructure is a key target. Measures and countermeasures by the U.S. include unilateral sanctions and increasing military capabilities in the region, such as greater offensive capabilities in South Korea and Japan, and more U.S. asset deployments near the peninsula. Just the other day, a nuclear-capable submarine made a port call in South Korea for the first time in four decades. And with hours, within hours of its arrival, the North Koreans fired two short-range ballistic missiles. Uh, in contrast to the previous administration, the Biden team's approach to North Korea emphasizes greater alliance coordination uh, on the extended deterrence strategy the U.S. and the ROK recently resumed full-scale, live-fire, joint military exercises, including simulated decapitation strikes 
for the first time in four years. The North Koreans followed in turn with their own live fire exercises, and uh, during this period, there was no apparent real-time communication during these exercises, heightening the chances of an accident. So without an off-ramp in sight, this cycle that I've just described undoubtedly is going to continue for the foreseeable future. And a big question is how to prevent this situation from spiraling. Global dysfunction has sidelined the UN Security Council, which traditionally has been a key venue for multilateral coordination on North Korea. The Council has not agreed to any new measures on North Korea in five years now. Deadlock on the DPRK among the Council's permanent members has been building for some time, and this divide has hardened for sure since the war in Ukraine began. So against this very sobering background, um, the prospects for a new cooperation and coordination on North Korea look extremely grim. Washington and Moscow used to have uh, serious discussions on North Korea. In fact, Russia previously played a constructive role in talks with North Korea over denuclearization. Uh, but since the invasion of Ukraine, there is no expectation for a constructive dialogue. The possibility for meaningful U.S.-China cooperation is mi minimal due to deep disagreements in other areas and an enduring zero-sum atmosphere has set in, further limiting potential coordination. As these geopolitical tensions grow, it's not surprising that adversaries of the U.S., like North Korea, are finding common cause with Moscow and Beijing. North Korea-Russia ties have deepened since the war in Ukraine, uh, after the collapse in talks between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un at the Hanoi summit, in February 2019, Pyongyang has steadily sought expanded ties with Beijing, and these countries have an incentive to work together to circumvent sanctions to advance their own interests. Uh, they would also like to see a diminishment of U.S. power and a transition of power away from the West more broadly. So as Joe Biden looks ahead to the fourth year of his presidency, no visible progress has been made toward opening unconditional talks with Pyongyang. Early in the administration, U.S. officials described their North Korea policy as falling somewhere between the approaches of Donald Trump and Barack Obama. As one official put it, our policy will not focus on achieving a grand bargain, nor will it rely on strategic patience. A key goal has been to engage in direct talks with North Korea officials to achieve complete denuclearization. The now familiar uh, we'll meet anywhere, anytime, without preconditions language stated by officials across the administration has been consistently rebuffed by Pyongyang. In an interview just this past weekend, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said, we have indicated to North Korea that we're prepared to sit down and talk without preconditions about their nuclear program. But to the North Koreans' ears, this language does contain a precondition, and it's a significant one, talks about their nuclear program. And I think as long as the administration sticks to this approach, it's difficult to see it going anywhere. Uh, given North Korea's advancing capabilities, and the widening geopolitical divide that I've just described. 
along with the mounting regional arms race and growing danger of confrontation on the peninsula, a reevaluation of the Biden administration's policy towards North Korea is overdue. The old formula of seeking international sanctions combined with unilateral steps to pressure Pyongyang into negotiations is no longer effective. It hasn't been working for quite some time. Deterrence alone won't secure peace on the, North, on the Korean Peninsula. What's needed is a pragmatic diplomatic strategy in parallel to the deterrence and coercive policies that are currently in place. And convincing Pyongyang that talks with the United States could still result in attractive benefits requires more than just reiterating that Washington is willing to meet anywhere, anytime. We need a new formula. The North Koreans are carefully watching developments in Ukraine, a country that once possessed nuclear weapons. The key lessons uh, they are likely drawing is an obvious one. Uh, nuclear weapons, plus the means to deliver them, are the only reliable means to deter foreign aggression and the only source of security against regime change attempts. In conversations I've had with North Korean officials over the years, they've consistently pointed to the examples of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya and Saddam Hussein in Iraq as cautionary tales. Look what happened to them. And then the killing of U by the US of Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Quds Force in Iran in January 2020, a country that does not possess nuclear weapons, is an additional lesson. Uh, Kim likely saw it as a successful decapitation exercise. There are certain uncomfortable realities that I think we need to face as we think through adjustments to the U.S. approach. I'll focus on four. Uh, first, uh, uh, with an arms race in Northeast Asia, including the buildup by Beijing of its nuclear force, the region is moving toward increased nuclearization, not denuclearization. Getting the North Koreans to agree to talks focused on relinquishing their nuclear capabilities while the region is building up just isn't a realistic goal. Uh, second, given the advancements in North Korea's nuclear and missile programs, there's a greater risk of an accident, also an increased risk of a nuclear exchange, and the chances for misreading and miscalculation are far greater today than what they were just one year ago. Third, following the failed Hanoi summit, normalizing relations with the United States does not appear to be a priority for North Korea as it once was. And fourth, sanctions are having an impact, but it's clear that they're not delivering the policy changes we'd like to see. Given shifts in geopolitical dynamics, it appears that sanction, sanctioning North Korea has reached its limits as an effective policy tool. So in sum, we have entered a fraught period with limited options. Our focus should be on what is possible. Uh, continuing to demand that Kim fully denuclearize is simply unrealistic in the near term, likely in the medium term. Beyond that, who knows? No one knows. Uh, instead, framing denuclearization as a distant end goal with a very ambiguous timeline is a more sensible approach. This would require a major shift in the mindsets of U.S. policymakers 
and on Capitol Hill, and a recognition that there are important goals to pursue short of full denuclearization. Some would call this a crisis prevention or an arms control approach. One of the most important tasks at hand for the Biden administration vis-a-vis -vis North Korea is to establish a sustained and reliable channel of communication with Pyongyang. The Biden administration's current focus on stabilizing relations with China through the reestablishment of reliable communications channels and a steady dialogue provides a potential model for a new approach with North Korea. With visits by Tony Blinken, Janet Yellen, uh, just John Kerry, I think today, just left, senior American and offic uh, Chinese officials are talking again. Also, I think nascent efforts underway to do the same with Iran offer some direction here. Negotiations on store, uh, restoring the Iran nuclear deal have been in stalemate mode for about a year now. Uh, and both Washington and Tehran have now decided to try a different approach. They appear to have come to conclusion, at least for now, that it's in their interest to stabilize relations. Uh, they reportedly have reached an understanding to pursue a new pattern of engagement uh, that attempts to pause hostilities for the next 16 months or so until the next presidential election, move toward de-escalation, essentially a timeout, and then, uh, depending on what happens in November, sit down for full talks to pursue a nuclear deal after the election. If we can get to a dialogue with the North Koreans, a focus should be placed on reaching mutually agreed upon measures to prevent an inadvertent clash and reduce the risk of conflict on the Korean Peninsula. The best form of crisis management is crisis avoidance. Beyond that, pursuing measures centered on influencing Pyongyang's decision-making calculus not to use nuclear weapons is another sensible priority. Uh, finally, the Biden administration is especially hesitant to be seen as doling out incentives to get the North Koreans to the negotiating table. We've accumulated a significant amount of leverage and bargaining chips in the form of sanctions and other coercive means, and there should be a greater willingness to use them in creative and strategic ways to advance American interests. I'll stop there. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Suzanne. Well, uh, thanks, um, Doug and Eric and Cato for inviting me. Being the last speaker at the end of the day, I get to be as controversial as I want to be. Um, <laughs> a lot of information has already been given out on all the facts. Um, I did want to pick up on a couple of threads, um, especially uh, from Frank and Suzanne. And, and the first was really you know, this idea of when we talk about Biden's approach, as Suzanne just laid out, um, Biden's approach to North Korea, this whole practical and calibrated approach that's not quite strategic patience, not quite whatever Trump's um, policy was. But um, I think it's clear, you know, the U.S. has given a lot of thought to a negotiation strategy with North Korea, assuming we can ever get back to the table. What we don't have is a real strategy for rebuilding diplomacy with North Korea so that we can get back to the table. How do we get there? Um, and, and again, this idea of just repeating this you know, notion of 
talks anytime, anywhere about denuclearization is not a strategy, at least not an effective one, right? So, you know, this is something that we really need to grapple with as to how do we rebuild diplomacy with North Korea? One way of doing that, as Frank has talked about, would be to take a proactive approach, um, unilateral concessions. But I think, you know, we've created, we've already boxed ourselves into an approach that requires North Korea to do something positive first. And then we are willing to do positive things in return. Um, and we've done this for so long that now anything that we do is positive that isn't preceded by North Korea doing something positive is then viewed as rewarding bad behavior. So that makes it especially hard now when North Korea is actively testing, actively violating UN Security Council resolutions um, to make those kind of unilateral um, concessions without it looking like we're rewarding bad behavior. And you hear this a lot in DC, this phrase used over and over and over. Um, would it be helpful? Could it help create a diplomatic opportunity? Maybe, there's no guarantees, it's diplomacy. Um, but at the same time, the amount of political capital that it would take to do so um, is enormous right now. Um, again, given the precedent of how we've treated this issue in the past. Um, but compounding that and complicating that too is our whole um, move towards ideological blocks of values-based diplomacy, a values-based world order. Um, so as we talk about democracies versus autocracies, as we um, push towards this sort of new Cold War paradigm, it makes it even that much more difficult to reach across ideological lines. Um, because then you also get the pushback of, you know, not only is it about the nuclear issue, but then if we do positive moves that aren't preceded by North Korean positive moves, um, not only is it rewarding bad behavior, but then it becomes this, well, why are we propping up a dictatorship, right? It is the, the values clash underlies the broader security situation, making it, again, a real challenge of political leadership. So the amount of political capital in the current environment is so high um, to make any moves without a real, uh, a real sense of... Um, that we can succeed, um, a real sense of how quickly success might come if we do that, um, and knowing the criticism will come from all sides uh, for anything that's done. It's too much, it's too little, um, no one will ever be happy, it, but it's something that you know, um, may eventually uh, help advance US interests, may eventually help create a more peaceful, a more, a, a, a less tension-filled environment and might create the kind of opportunities we need in order to actually get down to some of the other issues that would lead towards um, a security situation in which disarmament would actually be a compelling and, and um, convincing choice. But that's way far down the road. <laughs> um, so I think you know, there's a lot of things that we need to be thinking about now in the current security environment where we're not looking at North Korea in isolation anymore, but how it fits into the broader 
um, geopolitical, the broader security paradigm? Can we really get back to meaningful talks with North Korea about their nuclear weapons program, about our security relationship with them, when we still have you know, high tensions between US and China, when there's no cooperation there? And as Eric pointed out before, um, when, and, and, and uh, Frank pointed out before, you know, when the arms control regime in general, globally, is defunct, and when the NPT is weakening, when there's all of these security challenges, the idea that North Korea in the middle of that is going to suddenly decide that it's unilaterally making the decision to move towards disarmament, as Suzanne said, as everyone else is still arming up, um, is just really unrealistic. So, you know, I think the, the, the way we need to approach this today is much different than the way we would have approached the issue in the past. Um, and yet we still kind of follow the same approach that we started in 1994 before North Korea even had nuclear weapons. Um, and I, I think it's very difficult now, again, in this whole sort of ideological paradigm that we're moving towards, it's very difficult to see how that changes in American policy. Um, but at the same time, the question is, is what does a peace regime actually look like? What, what does it mean? Um, and I, I don't think there's any agreement on this. Frank talked about a, a sort of positive peace, and Frank and Suzanne both talked more about a positive peace, where we have active engagement, where we're normalizing relations. Um, and, you know, the, President Moon, under that administration, you know, was promoting a, a peace regime of coexistence and economic integration. Um, but those are, that, that is a very fluid definition. And one that you have to question, is that really the benchmarks we're looking for now? Um, would a peace regime, could you have a peace regime where it's less positive, where it's not a positive peace regime, but it, one where we kind of leave each other alone? And is that better than where we are now? Um, so I, th I think we really need to, you know, test these assumptions and figure out, you know, along a spectrum of what peace could look like. There's a lot of options. Um, and the where we fall on it or where we start with it, um, where we think that first benchmark is, um, the measures that we could or should be willing to take to get there um, could be very different than what the final um, vision of peace is further into the future. Uh, so... Um, and I'm just going to jump around in my notes because, again, a lot of stuff has already been covered. Uh, but, you know, I think we have to... Okay. Um, so, again, when, you, when we look at the situation, as Eric laid out, in East Asia now, you know, we do have a nuclear arms race going on. Um, how far that goes is really unclear. I, I was at a conference the other day where one of the questions to me was like, well, how many, what does North Korea think is enough nuclear weapons, right? Um, we don't know that. I don't know that Kim Jong-un knows that. Um, but you could ask the same question about, North, about uh, China. How many nuclear weapons does China think it actually needs now? How many nuclear weapons does the U.S. think it needs now? Um, in the current geopolitical environment. And that is still changing and evolving as we go along. So this idea that North Korea has a set number um, is questionable. It is an assumption and one that we don't have a lot of evidence to back up. 
Um, but you could also ask the same, kind of flip the question to South Korea, given the fact that South Korea has superior conventional forces. It has, you know, especially if you have the combined force capabilities of the U.S. and South Korea, the overmatch of what it is to North Korea's military capabilities is quite high. So how much overmatch in South Korea is enough before the South Koreans will feel safe? Do they, and now with, the, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what you have is a real revival of the notion that only nuclear weapons, that nuclear weapons are the answer to defenses. Um, and how do we get back to a non-proliferation mindset? How do we move away from that and deflate that notion that only nuclear weapons are the answer to preventing any kind of um, uh, attack by a nuclear weapons state, a nuclear armed state? Um, so there are a lot of challenges here in the broader security regime that we need to be aware of when we're thinking about North Korea. Um, we can't really think of it in isolation anymore. We really need to be um, understanding the challenges that are around it and how that affects North Korea's perception of its own choices as well, um, if we want to start to address them in a more effective manner. Um, and then I want to take the conversation in a little bit different direction and go to this idea of, like, does a peace regime require a peace treaty, mm. a formal peace treaty? Can we ever have a, a sustainable peace regime without ending the war? Do we need a peace treaty? And I think if we, if we hold that as one of the standards, which, again, I'm not saying we have to, um, but then we have a few obstacles um, to deal with. I think three major obstacles. One is who's deciding it? Who needs to be part of the negotiations of that peace treaty? Um, the second is sequencing of peace versus denuclearization, right? Like we didn't have these peace talks um, before North Korea had nuclear weapons, but now that North Korea has nuclear weapons, does that have to be solved before we can have a peace regime? Um, and the third is really what is the end state that needs that we need to agree on in order to have a peace treaty. And all of these are, are incredibly complicated issues. Um, if we take the first, you know, we're, we're here to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the signing of the Armistice Agreement. And certainly the, the parties to that were the United Nations Command, um, which was, rep was U.S. represented by the United Nations Command. It was the Korean People's Army, um, in North Korea and the um, Chinese People's Army at the time. So do all of those parties have to be involved in peace treaty negotiations? Do they have to agree on something in order to move it past the armistice state into, um, the, into a formal peace treaty? Um, where does South Korea get involved? Can you add parties to that? Um, and if you're adding parties, then who else should have a say? Um, I think there was a notion in, um, you know, during the Moon administration in Panmunjom um, when they came out of the summit and both Korean leaders said they're ready for peace. Um, I think they were surprised at how much, I think they thought if both Korean leaders said they were ready for peace, who would stand in their way? And I think they were very surprised by the pushback on that. Um, and I, I think there's, again, these underlying reasons and these underlying issues that are standing in the way of peace, regardless of whether or not the political appetite for it is there. Um, 
I, I would say too, though, uh, at the end of the Obama administration, there was a moment where um, the North Koreans were willing to talk about peace, a peace treaty or a peace regime with the United States. The United States was sort of entertaining the notion. Um, and I, I had visits from South Korean officials who were very concerned about this. Um, and they were very nervous that the U.S. would be negotiating directly with the North Koreans, that they wouldn't consult the South Koreans. And the message to me was that because South Korea was not ready for this. Little did they know that, you know, that they would be <laughs> having, you know, the Panmunjom summit not long after, um, and the direction that it would go in the next administration. But at the end of the Obama administration, that was a key message from the South Koreans, was they weren't ready for peace. Well, what does ready for peace look like? And what would they need to believe um, in order to move forward? Uh, but then you get this, this idea of this tension between, sequ this sequencing tension. Um, can, you, can we now accept um, a nuclear North Korea and still, can we end the war without solving the, the nuclear issue first? Um, and I don't think there's any consensus on this. If you talk to a range of people, you will get a range of views. Um, but I do think there is a tendency in the United States, and especially in South Korea, um, to want denuclearization first. That has to be solved before we can actually be at peace. Um, whereas, you know, in North Korea, it's the opposite, right? Like you, you, it, this is a disarmament issue that we're talking about. So why would they disarm before we had peace? Um, and this has always been an underlying tension of, you know, how do we sequence this? What role does the nuclear question have in any kind of formal peace arrangement? Um, and then, you know, the, the bigger issue here, though, is then if you can get past the nuclear issue, um, what does a Korea at peace look like? Is it a one-state solution or is it a two-state solution? Does unification, reunification, is it required for a peace treaty? Does, and I, I think there's an underlying tension here that this issue has to be solved in order to have a peace treaty. Um, and again, I don't think there's any agreement on what that is. And if unification is still necessary for peace, um, while they're moving towards unification, it's still, you know, there's still a pressure um, for whose values will preside over a unified Korea. And so, you know, if you, this is, if we're still looking at a one-state solution, a one-state solution is also an existential crisis, an existential threat for one party or the other. Um, so, you know, will we ever get to a point where we can have, we can accept a two-state solution with or without nuclear weapons? Um, and, I, you know, I don't know if we can get there, um, but it's certainly one of the tensions that prevents us, even before North Korea had nuclear weapons, prevented moving forward with that peace process. Um, so I think, you know, going back to sort of where I started, uh, if we're looking at... Um, you know, some of the things that we, we could be doing now to address the broader security situation in, North, in, in Northeast Asia, not just on the Korean Peninsula, in order to try and create some room for um, meaningful dialogue with North Korea to restart. I think we need to be, you know, trying to create different bilateral, minilateral, multilateral channels of communication 
um, about the regional security dynamics, about the regional security situation. It isn't just North Korea that's a problem right now, but there, there's a lot of dangerous trends going on in the region. And if we don't address them, if we don't move them in a certain direction, the Korean Peninsula isn't in isolation going to do that on its own. So, you know, Issues like, can we create dialogues about preventing nuclear war <laughs> um, in the interest of all parties? Um, what would it take? You know, what, what do different countries see as different triggers? Um, and what would lead us to worst-case solutions? What are we willing to do to prevent those worst-case solutions? Again, either bilateral, minilateral, multilateral forums. Um, the idea of, uh, you know, humanitarian a disaster response. These are issues that, is, you know, with climate change going on, with other kinds of disasters beyond just um, nuclear, you know, the potential for conflict, um, how can we cooperate in, as a region when it's in our interest to prevent um, a crisis within the region? Um, or even just, like, the idea of codes of conduct and signaling on uh, military exercises, right? The North Koreans have been doing operational missile drills and only tell us about it after they've done it. <laughs> and so like, you know, one morning they did 23 missile launches um, and then the next day uh, mentioned, oh, by the way, that was a, a drill. Well, how, that, that leaves a lot of room for interpretation and, and misperception and miscalculation. So can we have, you know, a dialogue about um, you know, the codes of conduct. Can we agree to a code of conduct? And if you're going to do it, here are the rules in which, you know, that we will signal each other, we will inform each other to prevent those kinds of, of misperceptions. Um, and another one is just, again, the kind of re creating a code of conduct to reiterate global norms in conflict. Um, so on a regional level or on a bilateral level, um, you know, especially now with the risk of conflict in the region high, um, seeing some of the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine, you know, can we come to an agreement about, you know, there are certain norms that we will adhere to that do align with what's in the Geneva Conventions, what's in the, the Non-Proliferation Treaty um, that would prevent, you know, try and minimize the disaster even if we do get to conflict. Um, so those are just some ideas of, you know, dialogues that we could be having that could create further diplomatic opportunities um, to try and move the whole region um, into a more of a real security dialogue in hopes of creating new diplomatic opportunities with North Korea. Thanks, Jenny. I'd like to start with a question that uh, ties in with the issue of the uh, role, role of denuclearization and a peace regime. Most analysts that I talk to on Korea are quite skeptical that there is much chance that the current regime, at least in the North, is going to denuclearize. That while CVID, you know, comprehensive, irreversible, verifiable disarmament, is kind of the totem of U.S. policy to which everyone must bow, the question is, if it's not realistic, how should we approach that? Well, it strikes me there are three approaches. One would be to still say that's absolutely necessary and the North must agree to that. The second would be to proceed as, you know, kind of with an arms control approach, not conceding that they are a nuclear power, you know, kind of if asked, say, yes, that is our goal, but proceed in a more practical fashion. And the third would be to throw up our hands and say, look, they're a nuclear power and let's just 
that would be open about some kind of arms control. So I'm curious what you all would think about. Is, is there an approach that strikes you as the most profitable in trying to create a peace regime and some, making the peninsula more stable and peaceful? I, I like door number three, um, just because, yeah. <laughs> like, it, 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 they have them. They're probably not going to give them away. Um, and, you know, there's a lot you can do even if they keep them. Um, I, I think that is incredibly politically unlikely. Uh, so I, I think the more likely option is door number two. And what's interesting is that it feels like they're among the expert community, right, among folks like us. Um, and even, I think, among a lot of the general public, there is this sort of uh, recognition that, like, okay, yeah, we're not going to get to denuclearization. We're not going to get to CVID. Um, and, but it's been, at least so far, kind of res resistant, I think, to filtering up to the policymaker set, um, at least from what I've heard and seen. Like, if I, I, I raised that once with um, some colleagues from like a South Korean National Defense University right before the pandemic started, and their response to that was like, "Whoa, no, 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 we can't do that. Like, we absolutely cannot say that, even if they kind of agreed. Like, all right, yeah, we're not going to get them to give up the nukes. Um, so I think crossing that that barrier might be important, um, or at least behind closed doors, they need to be able to say the North Koreans. We get it, like we're not going to get to CVID, but we we also can't like stop talking about it. It's very, I mean, I think the, I think that's been the theme of this panel, right? There's a lot of, it's just Gordian knots all the way down, uh, it, and it's it's kind of very difficult to find like the way to in, disentangle them in a way that makes real progress. Frank, uh, I agree. I think um, with your initial statement, which is that. North Korea is not going to disarm. That's a reality. But there's also the, the flip side reality, which is the U.S. will not accept a North Korea that has not, that has not denuclearized or hasn't committed to denuclearization, right? So those are the, the two maximalist goals, right? So that's why I think despite the unlikelihood of North Korea denuclearizing, disarming, we also need to keep denuclearization on the table. It may not be the near-term goal, a Libya approach like John Bolton, but it has to be there somehow. A long-term goal, an aspirational goal, a fig leaf goal, but denuclearization has to be there. Otherwise, we know the political rally in the U.S., uh, the Congress will never support any sort of peace arrangement with North Korea where they have not at least committed to the path of denuclearization, right? So... Um, I think that's a reality that we also need to understand. Um, and I, I don't think we think through enough. I mean, uh, Representative Sherman talked about the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act and uh, the need for a peace agreement. Again, I talked about in my remarks that the Congress will not agree to a peace treaty. Will not provide the Senate will not provide two thirds approval. Uh, in any situation where North Korea has not taken significant steps towards denuclearization and most likely taken significant steps toward impro towards improving the human rights situation. So it's, it's, a, th it's, a, it's a fine line we have to walk, a needle that we have to thread, um, and, and it's going to require a lot of weird sort of semantic uh, sleight of hand, uh, but I think denuclearization must be in there somewhere. I mean, we're marking 70 years of a frozen conflict without a peace treaty, right? So, so this idea of like, you know, saying one thing but sort of doing the other. Well, I think, for example, like the, Singa the Singapore <laughs> statement um, was about uh, um, 
a good of a compromise as we could do because it stated that North Korea would work towards complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Very vague. It wasn't CVID. It was just sort of complete denuclearization, yeah. and it was long-term. I think that was good enough to get the ball moving forward, and that's the best we can hope for at the moment. Suzanne? What I'd like to see happen is the U.S. and North Korea engage in a private, quiet back channel. Uh, where we discuss these issues, let's call them talks about talks, uh, not formal negotiations. And uh, there, the, I think it would be helpful for the North Koreans to explain why they can't give up their nuclear program. It's understandable. And at the same time, the Biden administration would need to explain why it can't give up demanding denuclearization. And as, as Frank just said, I mean, let's face it, in this town, um, you know, Congress would go crazy if the, if the Biden administration stepped back from that. But not only Congress, our allies in the region would also, I think, go a little crazy. Um, so I think that's where we need to get, is just to have that sort of quiet talk um, outlining what the parameters would be, what the constraints each side is facing domestically and otherwise. Um, and I agree. I think the Singapore summit declaration holds up pretty nicely. Uh, it's by no means a strategy. It wasn't meant to be, but it's really a statement of principles. And that's what you talk about in talks about talks. So that's, the, that's how I proceed. Now, you've been involved in two track talks. Would you see that as being perhaps a way into these kind of discussions? Absolutely, without question. And also my involvement with talks with Iran. Uh, it was a very similar process, talks about talks, before even beginning negotiations on the JCPOA. That really allowed a process to um, talk about intentions, constraints, what are the red lines each side is facing. You know, we haven't spoken to the North Koreans in any serious way for years now, um, and we need to do that. Jenny? You know, I, I don't see it as limited to three choices. And even within those three choices, it, there's a lot of overlap. It isn't an either or. Um, I think we need to rethink or question a lot of our assumptions, first of all. I think we tend to treat North Korea as like this should be an easy decision for them to give up nuclear weapons. And I think a lot of people believe that North Korea only developed nuclear weapons as a bargaining chip. We hear this a lot of like they're just using it for coercion. Um, there is no one reason why North Korea built nuclear weapons. Um, part of, there are multiple reasons why one of them is a self-defense security component. Another is that it's cost-effective. Um, it's more cost-effective than trying to improve their conventional capabilities beyond what South Korea has, beyond what South Korea and the U.S. have combined. Like, they just don't have the resources for it. So this was a way to have, like, going for the asymmetric capabilities was a way to sort of maximize what resources they did have to maximize their self-defenses in the process. So what we are asking North Korea to do an insecure country to do that we are technically still at war with is to disarm and trust us. And we've heard many examples of why that's a really big ask. Um, but we treat it as like they want this. They only did this because of, you know, they only built nuclear weapons because they want to talk to us. Well, if, if you look at the way that North Korea talks about its nuclear weapons program now, it is different. 
Um, in the early days, they always sort of hedged it as like, as long as the U.S. maintains its hostile policy, we need you know nuclear weapons. Blah 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 blah. What you hear now is none of that. The, there's been statements that a, a line has been crossed, a moment is over, and when the North Koreans talk about their nuclear weapons program now, they are a responsible nuclear state, self-declared responsible nuclear states, that their program, their nuclear weapons are here to stay. And I think that's part of also why you see like um, Kim Jue, the daughter, in some of the um, imagery about their missiles and stuff is to sort of reiterate this notion that the way they're thinking about their nuclear program is very different than what it was before. Um, so, you know, the idea that we can convince North Korea to disarm now when, one, they're so far along, and two, the security situation is so much worse than it was before for an insecure country, um, I think we really need to rethink our approaches. And, you know, the only example we have in history of a country that built their own sovereign nuclear weapons program and then voluntarily gave it up is South Africa. Um, and I think there's something to be learned in you know, studying that example. What were some of the benchmarks that they saw um, that led them to that decision? And, and certainly their program was only like seven nuclear weapons at the time that they gave it up. It was a much easier thing to give up. But, um, but I, I think you know, in, in interviews that F.W. de Klerk has done about his decision, he himself was anti-nuclear. Um, there was obviously a change of leadership when he came in, um, but there was also a very drastic change in the security situation mm -hmm. that allowed him to make different choices, even if they were domestically unpopular, um, and then to benefit then as they moved um, away from apartheid, um, then to benefit from the economic reintegration into the world, right? And when we think about North Korea, our, our approach has been really to, you know, force them, pressure them, increase the pressure on them um, to make the decision to disarm, um, but, and offering only economic incentives. And so the question is, is you know, what would it take? What would the security situation have to look like? What would our relations have to look like um, for an insecure country to feel more secure about moving towards disarmament? Um, and that's going to require security concessions on our side as well, um, beyond just military exercises, right? So um, I, I think there's, there's a lot that we need to study about, um, you know, what, how, how do you convince an insecure country um, to disarm that we just, uh, we're just not putting in the effort right now to do? I'd like to start out for audience questions. What I'm going to ask is, uh, you give your name, affiliation, and wait for the microphone. Why don't we go there and back? Howdy, my name is Jaden Batista. Um, this is a question for Mr. Gomez um, with the SUNY Washington program here in DC. Um, you talked about a peaceful regime um, change for North Korea. Um, not Sorry, um, you talked about a peaceful regime pact with North Korea, um, and the basis was because of the fact that they have nuclear weapons, but how can we enter a pact with them when there have been multiple times where North Korea has attacked the ROK um, na naval ships 
and also the U.S. changing presidents. Sorry, let me change this. Um, I got you. <laughs> how can we ask them to give up their nuclear weapon program? How can we ask them to change anything when in the past 30 years, 30, 40 years, they have attacked countless times South Korean ships and and as we've seen the last three years, U.S. presidents have changed their methods of speaking with Donald Trump being the more radical, um, saying my button is bigger than yours and that I will blow him away. So how can we really ask them to come to the table? Yeah. Well, to quote Game of Thrones, you only, pay, you only make peace with your enemies. Um, I, so I think on this question of well, number one, if, if we set that as the bar, then we're never going to get any. We're never going to get anywhere, right? Um, and I think that on the other, another aspect of this too is that uh, the inter-Korean peace agreement from 2018 has actually been sort of the only effective thing that's lasted uh, from the last time we engaged with the North Koreans. I think it provides a really helpful blueprint for what might work in terms of having some sort of agreements that reduce tension, right? And it's not, about, it's not just about the nukes, right? But about creating a more sustainable, a more, uh, co like more helpful way to coexist with one another, even though North Korea might still be doing things that we don't like. Um, and so to provide some context on that, in 2018... Uh, the South Korea and North Korea agreed to a series of military confidence building measures when Moon went to Pyongyang, uh, which included things like disarming guards at uh, the Joint Security Area at Panmunjom, uh, included things like creating certain zones, like no-fly zones or, or no-go zones for military exercises within, I believe, five kilometers of the DMZ line, um, creating a sort of zones in the West Sea where they uh, had certain gun emplacements that either like were covered up or like the, the barrels of the guns were covered so that way they couldn't be used as quickly. And it's all really relatively small ball stuff. And that has sort of worked because it has helped prevent things along the DMZ one-off incidents or, or, or exchanges of fire from escalating beyond that, right? And again, it's not, it doesn't solve everything, right? But that, that, the 2018 agreement helped create a lot of little small ways to improve some regularity, to improve some peace and stability. Um, and I think that's a kind of model, right? Where, yeah, North Korea does things that are not good. Um, and, right, like, if, if, if you just refuse to sort of have any kind of agreement with any country that does a thing you don't like, <laughs> we'd just be in a really, that's a really weird way to go through uh, international politics. Um, so I, I think, the, and I, I think the South Koreans show that, because they lost people in the Cheonan sinking, like, uh, eight years prior, I believe, or seven years prior to that 2018 agreement. But they were still able to reach it. And as far as I know, it is mostly held in place despite the downturn relations. The only thing I'd add there is that there's a saying that the United States doesn't have permanent enemies, it only has 
permanent interests, right? And so, you know, we fought with many other countries in the past, wars with England. We had, now we have a special relationship. We fought war with Japan. Now we're allies. We fought the war with Vietnam. And now we have a very uh, promising relationship based off of reconciliation. So, you know, that's what we're working towards. We have, you know, these adversary relationships with countries. We're working towards developing peaceful ones. Just very quickly, how do we ask North Korea to come to the table, uh, given what they've done? Um, we have to approach this as a transactional agreement. Um, and in that sense, we have things North Korea wants, and we should be willing to give them in exchange for things that they're willing to do. That's going to be the crux of any um, agreement, especially with an adversary. Uh, purely transactional. Could we get to transformational someday? Uh, maybe. Uh, we're, it's hard to imagine at this point that would be ideal. But I think from a transactional point of view, we do have things, um, bargaining chips of our own, uh, that we can offer. Jen, Donna. I, I would just add that, you know, really what is in U.S. interest? And it is in U.S. interest to have, you know, a less dangerous security environment in one of the most politically, economically, um, and militarily dynamic regions in the world that's important to our own um, success and survival. So um, I think there, there's always going to be the, there's always going to be the downsides to it. It's always going to be difficult to do given the state of relations we have now, but um, you saw during the Trump era where, again, we went from fire and fury one year to the Singapore summit the next year, got, you know, started talking about why this was in U.S. interest, got public opinion on board, got Congress to, to toe the party line. So this idea that we can't ever do that is wrong, but it will take enormous political capital to do so and the willingness to shoulder the criticism that will come with it. And we just haven't seen that very much um, in our more traditional um, leadership. We're down to the final eight minutes. I want to get one, at least one online. From Anonymous, given the ostensible China-North Korea tie, should the U.S. and South Korea's efforts to persuade, pressurize North Korea to disarm be accompanied by rapprochement efforts with China, or is it separate? Uh, do, do we separate U.S.-China and ROK-China relations? I think it would be important to discuss North Korea with China. I'd be very surprised if we aren't already, or at least attempting to. Um, you know, the Chinese don't want to see the North Koreans do another nuclear test. They're very much opposed to that. And I wonder if um, when Xi Jinping and Joe Biden met in Bali um, last year, this wasn't probably discussed. And maybe China has been um, encouraging North Korea not to do a nuclear test. These are the sorts of conversations we should be having. And in the case of China, these conversations really need to be leader to leader. Um, we're just getting back on track after the uh, spy balloon debacle. Uh, our talks with China, I know the administration is looking ahead to another Biden-Xi uh, Jinping encounter at the APEC summit in November. Um, so with China, I think we have to uh, be realistic that um, they might have limited influence 
and at the same time, they may be only willing to do so much. But I do think as North Korea's largest trading partner, clearly their life raft, especially during the pandemic, uh, China holds a lot of cards. I don't discount anything that Suzanne said. There's obviously a lot of influence that China has. But I am also concerned that there's too much emphasis on what China can do. Um, if you recall, the, the approach that the, the Obama administration took in the second half was a, a China-based approach, where, uh, and it was very much uh, revealed in the presidential debates between Trump and Biden. There were three debates, but one question in North Korea, and, and basically how, the, the question was, how are you going to deal with North Korea? And the way Biden answered it was not that he would turn to Kim Jong-un and talk about what to do, but he said, I'll talk to China and tell them that if they don't do more to rein in North Korea's behavior, China is going to see more actions that they find adverse, like the THAAD deployment. I don't think that's the right approach to think about it through the China angle, right? Because I think what we need to do is respond directly to North Korea's concerns, right? Everything that North Korea is asking for, the, you know, the the end to the strategic asset deployments, end to sanctions. These are not things that China has control over. The U.S. should respond directly to North Korea's concerns. Julie? You know, I, I agree. Um, but I, I think at the same time, again, in the current geopolitical environment, um, China matters in the sense of U.S.-China relations in the state it is now um, at in such an adversarial state creates too many incentives on the other side of the ideological block, right? So if you're Beijing, you're watching increased US, South Korea, Japan, security cooperation happening, you see greater integration of um, NATO in East Asia, um, and it fuels all of China's um, uh, insecurities and all of their concerns in the region, which then creates opportunities for North Korea, political, diplomatic, economic opportunities for North Korea that are zero to low political risk for them, versus anything that they do with the U.S. is going to be high political risk. It's going to take a lot of effort, um, and unless we're willing to do things either unilaterally or like without, with, with very little negotiation, which we've never really done in the past, um, that you know, the where they put their energy um, is going to is going to lean towards the easier choice, right? The low political choice. So if we don't get our relations with China uh, in a more positive direction, the idea that we're going to have any kind of fruitful dialogue, security dialogue with North Korea separate from that um, is probably unrealistic because there's a lot of things that China will do to incentivize and keep North Korea as a, as a security partner um, in this sort of block formation. Um, not to say that China ha holds the answers to North Korea, but certainly right now China matters more in this, in the how do they control the security environment in general and how, how does this sort of block formation play out. Eric, did you want to add anything? No, nope. I think we have to some more questions. Two, two minutes and 42 seconds. A quick, okay, hopefully it's quick. If we get down here, get, a, get the question and then get quick answers. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned, uh, my name is Paul Lindhurst, 
you mentioned that only South Africa had given up nuclear weapons, but there is another example that was right after the Iraq war. Libya gave them up as well. And it was not so successful for either Libya or Mr. Gaddafi. So I think that hoping that North Korea is going to give them up is just not realistic. I think it's much easier to change the mind of every congressman and senator <laughs> than to change their mind. Anyone have uh, a, quick, I, I'm sorry. a quick response to uh, that? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, very, if you, you want to do very quick. Okay, as quickly as possible, Erica Lentoris. We both lived in Korea for six years and uh, Japan for five years following that. Uh, the back channeling has me interested. I want to know what it looks like to you, how you would consider making it happen if you, you know, pulled all the strings. Mm -hmm. Well, Suzanne, yeah, and a, quickly, an official back channel, I think ideally it would be an intelligence channel. And there's been a precedent before, during the Trump administration, before a diplomatic channel was established, there was an intel channel. And I could see someone like um, maybe Bill Burns doing that with his counterpart in North Korea, uh, having a meeting somewhere. That would be ideal. But there are informal channels. It could be through track 1.5 channels. Uh, that can be done by a think tank or others. Uh, in other words, there are ways to talk to the North Koreans. They just need to agree to it. <laughs> Suze, to follow up a bit on that, Suzanne, have, because of your involvement with it, ha, did things just kind of shut down post Hanoi or because of the pandemic? I mean, primarily because of the pandemic. Right. I mean, when they closed the borders, and they're still closed primarily to this day. Um, we didn't see any officials leaving the country. Uh, there were some, and there continue to be some communications with uh, diplomats, of North Korean diplomats, but they're mainly based in Europe. Okay. I, I mean, my personal experience was that the New York mission shut down communication. Is it, was that felt by others as well? Uh, yes, I mean, I think the New York channel is, is still today very spotty. Sometimes they pick up the phone, sometimes they don't. Uh, it depends on what kind of mood they're in. I don't think it's sufficient. It's really a messenger, a messenger service. It's a channel implies you're actually gonna sit down and talk uh, at least to some degree about substance. And we certainly hope that reopens. Uh, we have gone slightly over. I'm sorry we can't take uh, any more questions. I wanna thank all of you in the audience as well as online. And for those of you in the audience, we actually have a reception. So we encourage all of you to uh, partake uh, outside. I think it's in the Winter Garden out yep. in the front lobby. So please, out this way, and you'll find some refreshment, your reward for coming. So thank you very much. <laughs>